following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Today is part three of a three-part sermon on the topic of decision-making. If you have not been here for the first two parts, you will have to go back uh, online to listen, because I will reference a couple of things along the way that probably will not make complete sense to you. Uh, just so you know why we're doing that. Again, uh, like I've said the last two Sundays, I'll say it one last time. I've been using the structure of Gary Friesen's book, Decision Making and the Will of God. Uh, so anything you hear today that's good, assume it's his. Anything else, assume it's mine. Amen. We're going to read James chapter 1, verse 5, very familiar verse, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. I'm not going to have a slide, so look at your, uh, look at your Bible. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we ask for wisdom because we are a people who desperately need it. Um, we need wisdom even now as we are approaching your text, your word. I pray that you will help us to understand it, that you will apply it to our lives in just very practical ways, that you will help us to think about you correctly, to understand you and how you work in this world, how you work in our lives. And so just be with us this morning. Spirit, uh, fill us. Open our hearts to receive the implanted word. And may we not go out as just hearers, but as doers of what we see today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope that uh, everybody took my advice from last Sunday. If you were on the verge of making a decision, I hope you did not make it uh, in the previous week, that you gave me one more Sunday to come back to this and try to finish this out. Uh, I thought we would start by just taking a quick uh, moment or two to review what we have seen so far. The question before us is, how do we make decisions? Okay, Whether we're talking about big things, small things, whatever the case may be, uh, another way we could say it is, how do we know the will of God for our lives? And I could mean that either generally speaking about just what we do, or I could mean it in relation to some very specific context. Uh, these are questions I assume that we all recognize are incredibly important and practical for us to know how to answer. And they're questions that every single one of us in this room have likely already faced many times in life. And if not, we will likely face many times in the future. And as believers, my hope for us is that our decision-making process will be different than that of any unbeliever around us, because for us as believers, our decision-making process is supposed to be governed by this desire to, to please the Lord. And that's not just, you know, saying something that sounds good in a you know, church setting. This is what Paul himself says in the letter to the Colossians about himself, is what he prays for them that they will walk, that they will live their life in such a manner that it is fully pleasing to God. And of course, that should be our goal as well. And so how do we do that? How do we know what pleases him? How do we know his will? That's the question we've been trying to answer. Well, in Friesen's book, he gave us four principles for making decisions, and we've looked at two of them so far. Uh, the first principle we see here is the principle of obedience. And the principle of obedience is very, very simple. It says, where God commands, we must obey. So where God commands, that's what we have to obey. But as we saw, you know, there was a lot more to it than just that simple statement because in the end, what he's really trying to communicate to us is a theology. And it's a theology that argues that everything that God wants us to know in order to live in a manner that is fully pleasing to him 
is actually found in the pages of Scripture alone, and we do mean everything. And I call it a theology because it is asserting something about God. It's asserting that we have a good and loving Father who is not trying to hide his will from us. He's not trying to make this difficult or mysterious so that we'd never know what it means to please him or how we should live, etc. That he's He's actually made it known to us so that we can go out and do these things. In other words, God's will is not a treasure hunt. Or maybe the Bible contains a clue or two that you can use as you're, you know, you're trying to figure this out, but the rest of that path, you know, whichever way it's zigging and zagging along the way, man, you've got to, you're really going to have to work for that and try to figure out where to go and what to do and how that looks, as if he's hiding it from us or you know, just wants to make it difficult for us to figure out. No, the, the principle of obedience states that God's will for your life, that all the things that you need to know, and those are the key words there, everything you need to know in order to please him is fully revealed in the pages of Scripture, and that means you simply need to obey. That is an amazingly simple concept and an amazingly profound one as well for a lot of people, that everything is found in the Scripture. That's the principle of obedience. The second principle we looked at last Sunday was the principle of freedom, And the principle of freedom says this, that where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. Where there is no command, God gives us freedom and responsibility to choose. And if you think about it, this is really just a corollary or an outworking of that first principle, because if God really has told us everything that we need to know in order to live for him, to please him, and then we run into something that he has not specifically told us what to do, it would seemingly make sense then that we must have freedom in that moment to make a choice. And thus the silly little illustration I gave last week about Adam and Eve's first supper, and believe me, if you weren't here last Sunday, you're going to be completely lost because I'm not repeating all of that. But, you know, when we think about that again, when it came to eating, God made his will for Adam and Eve very, very clear. You can eat of any of these trees, you can't eat of this one tree. I had a professor in college who used to say that God gave Adam and Eve a single solitary no and an overabundant yes. So if you've got an overabundant yes, eat of any of these trees, just don't eat of this one tree. And in the story, uh, when it came to eating, right, Adam goes out and he, uh, he goes and he collects fruit and he brings it back to Eve and, and Eve's sitting there looking at it and now she's perplexed, like, what does God want? Does he want us to eat the apples or the grapes or the figs or the bananas? What? What? And so she's seeking God's will, and she's waiting for direction and answer. She sends Adam back to the Lord. Adam asks God, what do you want to see for dinner? And he just repeated the command, right? Eat freely of any of the trees of the garden, just this one tree you can't eat of. And to summarize that whole thing, eventually they understand that as long as they're living in obedience, as long as they're eating from the trees he said you could eat from, and they're not eating from the trees he said you couldn't eat from, they're free to choose whatever they want. They can't make a bad decision. It's not bad to eat the apples. It's not bad to eat the bananas. It's not bad to eat the figs or the whatever. Eat. Whatever you want to do, eat. It's totally okay. As long as they're living in obedience, they are free. Now, that was, of course, a made-up example, but we did briefly look at a biblical example of the same concept about a topic that was far, far more important, and that was the topic of marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you go back, we didn't spend a lot of time in it, but if you were to go back and go through 1 Corinthians 7, as Paul is dealing with the issue of marriage and widows, for, uh, to be specific, he shows us that the widows he's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 7 actually have freedom in two different sets of decisions. 
the first set of decisions that they have freedom in is whether or not they want to get remarried. Okay, so they're widowed. Do they want to stay single or would they rather be remarried? And Paul's like, hey, listen, this is my opinion. This is not the Lord's uh, you know, command. It's my opinion. I think it's better if you stay single given the current circumstances, he says in the letter. But if you, know, you want to get married, get married. Is it sinful to stay single? No. Is it sinful to get married? No. Either way they go, they're in obedience, and they have freedom now to choose which one do they want. And if they choose to be married, then Paul says, okay, if a widow chooses to get married, she's free to marry whoever she wishes, only in the Lord. And you see there that the marriage, no pun intended, of, of the two first two principles, the principle of obedience and the principle of freedom, as long as everything about the decision falls underneath that realm of obedience and godliness and every single component, and she's got two different guys there, and you know, Joe and George, and they're both godly men, and everything, again, I'm assuming is in the realm of obedience. She likes Joe more than George? Marry Joe. You like George more than Joe? Marry Joe. I mean, George, yeah. Either way, Joe wins, right? I mean, doesn't matter. He can't get wrong. Um, it's just that simple. She's got this much freedom. That was the principle of, of freedom in just a silly example. And it just states this, and you can picture it this way, as long as you're living within that boundary, you're free to make choices that keep you within that boundary. Are you free to make a choice that takes you outside of that boundary? No. <laughs> then, you, then you've crossed the line of obedience, can't go there. So again, again, this is a simple yet profound idea for a lot of people. Now, having reviewed quickly where we've been, let me ask us a question for this morning. Does then, based on what I just said, you know, we're free to make choices within the boundary, does that then mean that every single choice that I could possibly make that keeps me within that boundary of obedience is then equally good? Okay, is that what that means? If I can make any choice I want that keeps me within the boundary of obedience, does it mean any choice I make is equally good? Well, that is an excellent question, but it would depend totally on how you define the word good here, okay? If by good you mean right versus wrong, well then sure, I already told you, if you know all the options keep me within the realm of obedience, then yes, I could say they're all equally good because none of them are gonna lead me into sin. None of them are gonna lead me into disobedience. So if you mean good that way, sure, they're all equally good. But if by good you mean good, better, best, well then no, of course not. Not all the decisions can be equally good. There has to be some differences between them. And quick case in point, uh, let's imagine that, and I want you to try to picture this. I want you to smell it and feel it and taste it in your mind, okay? Let's picture that for dinner or for lunch this afternoon, excuse me. You're presented with two options. Option number one is a plate, a fork tender pot roast covered in brown gravy. I can see it as clear as day. Covered in brown gravy, big creamy mashed potato pile, some butter oozing down, and some green beans that have been cooked in pork fat, a yeast roll, a little butter coming down the edge of that too. Option one, some of you are like, uh, mouth watering. Um, option two, our microwavable chimichangas that were found in the dumpster behind the Dollar Tree. You got to pick one or the other. Which one is it and are both equally good? Well, okay, back to my, my question. If by good I mean right versus wrong, well then yes, both are equally good. There's nothing inherently sinful about eating the pot roast or inherently sinful about eating the chimichangas as much as some of you may want to debate me on that point. I promise you it's not. They're, they're both good in that sense. 
But if by good you mean good, better, best, clearly the pot roast is a better choice than the chimichanga in this particular example, but also on multiple levels as well. So, you know, you get the idea. This would be a very silly illustration then of our third principle, which is, you guessed it, the principle of wisdom. The principle of wisdom. And the principle of wisdom is stated like this. And in your minds, as you're kind of like building a framework on, of the principles we've looked at so far, the, the principle of obedience is overall, we've given you freedom. Wisdom is going to go right next to freedom, okay? They're going to be together like this. So principle of wisdom is this, where there is no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. These are such complicated definitions. Where God gives us, uh, where there's no command, God gives us wisdom to choose. Principle of freedom, where there's no command, God gives us freedom Principle of wisdom, where there's no command, God gives us wisdom. They go together. Now, I would like to think that in a room like this, I would not need to defend the concept of using wisdom as we are making decisions. But just in case I'm wrong about that, here are four quick biblical justifications for exercising wisdom in the process of decision making. And I've put them in no particular order other than the order that was most helpful to me. First, we have the example of the Old Testament wisdom literature. Old Testament wisdom literature. Now, there's wisdom, of course, in the New Testament as well. But when you turn to the Old Testament, you see an entire genre of writing that is designed with nothing else in mind but the impartation of wisdom to the reader. And the best and most well-known example of this, of course, would be the book of Proverbs. Everybody, when they think of wisdom literature, instantly thinks of the book of Proverbs. And it's a great example because in the book of Proverbs, you find uh, examples of statements that are given as general truths, general wisdom truths or statements of life. For example, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. So what's, what's the wisdom here? Okay, If you're lazy, poverty. Work hard, riches. Now, I asked this question to the first service. I'll ask it to you as well. Does that mean that everybody who works hard is going to end up rich? No, no, it doesn't. And can someone be lazy and have a lot? Perhaps. It's a general statement. It's a general truth of wisdom. It will be generally true most of the time, but are there exceptions? Of course, there's always exceptions to things, but you get the idea. Uh, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So someone who's difficult and hateful, they're going to stir up problems, but the person who's exercising love is going to cover. Uh, what the wicked dreads will come upon him, but the desire of the righteous will be granted. This is one of my favorites and one of the funniest. Like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. They don't go together, okay? You don't put gold rings in pig's snouts and beautiful woman without discretion doesn't work. Uh, better to be lowly and have a servant than to play the great man and lack of bread. It reminds me of that commercial from a, a, three, four years ago. The guy had a big house, cars. He's driving around in his big riding lawnmower, and he's like, I'm in debt up to my eyeballs. Remember that commercial? That's what he's talking about right there. That's, that's the same, same concept. So obviously, I could get going, but you get the idea. God clearly values the impartation of wisdom to his children, and he provides an entire genre of writing that is designed to do nothing but that. Uh, second, you have the example of Jesus. So not only did he personally exemplify wisdom, but he used it in his teaching and commanded it as well. So, you know, think of the way, for example, that he would answer particularly adversaries who came to him and tried to catch him in some problem. My favorite is, is the coin, the tax question. You know, is it lawful? Is it, is it God honoring to pay taxes or not? He's like, well, show me a coin. I show him a coin. Whose picture's on it? Caesar. Well, then give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. 
That's wise, right? That was a wise way to handle that question in that context so that it didn't cause a problem and lead to something that he didn't want to do. And he does this over and over again. Think of his parables, his teaching. The parables in particular are good examples because they are designed to be interpreted with wisdom in mind. You have to be able to understand a common sense everyday picture to get the truth that's being communicated there. And so he uses that in his teaching and even in sending out his disciples. When he sent them out, he gave them a very simple command, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So be innocent and gentle as a dove, but be wise. So Jesus serves as a great example. Again, I could say more. You get the idea. Number three, we have the example of the apostles. Um, We often skip past these comments, but many times in the New Testament epistles, you will see the apostles say something that evidence they were trying to use wisdom in a particular context where maybe they did not have clear direction. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul is explaining to the Thessalonians his, his reason, he and his ministry team's reasons for what they were doing, you know, why they were doing what they were doing. So he says this to them, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best. Now, the ESV translates that as we were willing, but the idea of of the wording here is that we were making a decision. We thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. So what you can picture here is like Paul and the crew like gathered up, they're huddled up and like, we got to take, we got to, you know, we got to take care of the Thessalonians. Somebody needs to stay in Athens. How do we want to do this? What's best? Okay, and you can see them planning that thing out. And eventually they're like, okay, Timothy, you go. We're going to stay here. That's what we think is wise in this given situation. And so he just says it. You read it and you don't even notice that. But he's making a point about that. Again, uh, Paul writing to the Philippians, chapter 2, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. And he keeps going. He's like, hey, I'm looking at the situation. Somebody needs to go to you, Philippians. I'm going to send Epaphroditus back. That's just a decision Paul's making. Uh, Titus 3, verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychius to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And we read that, and it doesn't mean anything, but in the first century, when you're traveling mainly by boat, the wintertime is the most dangerous time to travel. So Paul's looking at the water, and he's like, I'm going to stay here. I think it's the wisest course for me to stay here. So whenever you guys are ready, send someone over. I'll be here in Nicopolis. You can find me there. So, so you see them making decisions. And then fourth, of course, you have the commands of Scripture. And obviously, you know, the book of Proverbs is filled with commands to pursue wisdom, to seek wisdom, to, to search for it like it's hidden treasure. Okay, you could, We could spend all day reading those. Paul, Ephesians 5, the passage Chris read earlier, told us not to walk as unwise, but as wise. Uh, James, in the passage we read here at the beginning, told us to ask God for wisdom. So we're commanded by God to seek wisdom, which means then, if you think about it, that the seeking of wisdom is actually an act of obedience. It falls under that category and heading. You've got to be doing this. You've got to be obeying God in this way by looking for wisdom. So we are supposed to walk in wisdom. We're supposed to exercise it in our decision-making. But of course, how? Um, I'll give you just six quick things. We're not done. Just six quick things here at the middle, in the middle, because I was thinking like, you know, sometimes people hear like we need wisdom and they don't know how to process it. Well, Here's six things to help you process it. Number one, just seek it. And I know that's probably really obvious to say, but since the scriptures say it repeatedly, I figured it was good enough to throw in here in my little list as well. Seek it. Like sincerely, search for it. 
Look for it. Seek it. Make it something that you want. Proverbs 2 would be a good place to go here to think about what it means to seek after wisdom. So as a general overarching comment, just be seeking it. Number two, search the scriptures. Uh, Psalm 119, 97 to 100 is a good place talking about how the scriptures give us wisdom. Uh, you know, so maybe not every decision we're facing is going to be directly addressed in scripture, but every decision we face will be impacted by scripture for sure. Our goals, our, our motivations, our, our purposes, etc. cetera. Uh, number three, prayer. Again, probably obvious, but James 1.5, the passage we read at the beginning, James commands us to pray. Pray, ask God for wisdom. And, you know, and this is not like a passing like, hey, God, you know, red shirt, blue shirt, what should I do? Help me out real quick. You know, you know, like sincerely seek him in prayer, asking for him to direct you, guide you, protect you, etc. Number four, count the cost. Count the cost. Friesen, I didn't like his heading for this one, so I changed it. Friesen called it uh, do outside research. And he uses as an example, and it's a good one, Luke 14, where Jesus is talking about, hey, you know, who? Who among you would go out to build a tower without first sitting down to say, do I have enough material, money, time, knowledge to build it? Otherwise, you're going to get started and people are going to be like, ha, you didn't finish it, <laughs> dummy. You know, like that's how they acted in the first century. So, uh, you know, count the cost. Or what king? You know, he's seemed at war and he's like, I got 10,000 troops. That guy's got 100,000. Yeah, probably not. So I'm going to send, you know, someone to, to try to make peace in advance. Count the cost. Look at the situation. Be honest with it. Think through all the, the ramifications and details. That's just an act of wisdom. Uh, number five, outside counselors, Proverbs 15, 22. There's safety in a multitude of counselors. And on this note, let me just emphasize something I've emphasized before, but it needs to be said again and again and again. That means go to people who will tell you the truth, not just what you want them to hear. Okay, You go to a friend and they just tell you what they, you know, you want to hear, yeah, they're your friend, but they're not being a friend to you in that moment. What you need in that moment when you're seeking counsel and decision-making is someone who will say to you very honestly, yeah, you got to think of this, this, this. It's a bad idea. It's a good idea. Whatever the case may be, they'll be honest with you. And it's a multitude, again. And I, I get it. Multitude's got a limit, right? We're not calling the Continental Congress to help us figure out what to do. You know, just, but three, four, five, six people in life that you really trust, you, you should have that kind of pool of people that's in your life that will tell you honest things and help give you good counsel and decision making. So, so seek outside counselors. And then number six is time. I, I just added this one for myself, time. And I get it. We, we don't always have the luxury of time and decision making. Sometimes you have to make a decision now. Like you, there's, no, there's no way around it. It just is. But to the extent you do have the luxury of time, take it. Because as you look through Proverbs, you look through Ecclesiastes, you get the sense that anyone who's hasty is probably making a poor choice. Hastiness in, in the wisdom literature is not viewed positively. It's generally viewed negatively. Now, we're the microwave society. We want everything right now, except chimichangas, right? We're, we want everything right now. And so like to have to sit and think and wait and pray and wait and talk and pray and wait, that goes against everything in us. But I'm telling you, time is an aspect of wisdom to make sure that, that you're thinking through things correctly. So principle number three is the principle of wisdom. Now principle number four, and this is the principle of humble trust. The principle of humble trust. And the principle of humble trust says this that when we have chosen what is moral and wise, 
I'm going to pause there. Think about that statement. When we have chosen principle of freedom, what is moral, the principle of obedience, and wise, the principle of wisdom. So when you have done these three things, when you have chosen what is moral and wise, we must trust the sovereignty of God to work out all the details together for good. We must trust the sovereignty of God to work out all the details together for good. Because in all of this talk about decision-making, you know, we definitely do not want to forget the sovereignty of God because that, that sits over all of it. You know, the Scriptures teach us that God is sovereign, that he is in control of all things. And when we talk about the sovereign will of God, it's particularly in relation to this idea of decision-making, we have to remember three theological truths. Number one, that the sovereign will of God is certain, meaning it will come to pass. No man thwarts God's will. No man. There's, there's no being in creation that is going to in any way put a hiccup in God's plan for this world. It is certain it will come to pass. Number two, the sovereign will of God belongs to God alone, meaning he is not obligated, nor will he likely share that with you. He has shared some of that with us in the pages of Scripture. He's told us a bit of his plan of what he's doing and why he's doing it, but, but who knows the mind of the Lord, right? I mean, and that's not my goal. I, I don't have that responsibility to, to plumb those depths and figure out the, the hidden mysteries of God. You know, that's, that's not a part of this game. I, it belongs to God alone, and I have to remember that and be okay with that. And then number three, remember that the sovereign will of God is perfect. It's perfect. It will lead to his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. And that statement is often misinterpreted as like, oh, everything's just going to be good. No, 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 no. That's not what I said. I said it will lead to his ultimate glory and our ultimate good, but that doesn't mean you're going to like it. It doesn't mean it's always going to be what you want. I, I was having a conversation. It was actually Henrik and I this week had coffee, and we got talking about Joseph. And I got thinking about it more and more later after that conversation. I was just picturing poor Joseph down in the pit. Remember that? And he gets thrown in the pit. They're going to kill him. He's down in the pit. So here he is down there. He's like crisscross applesauce hand like this. Like I can just see him like sitting there. And he, his brothers are up there. He can hear them. They're plotting his murder. Do you think Joseph in that moment is like, God is so good. Like God is, oh, God, is his perfect will is so good for me right now. Do you, I, maybe he was a great guy. I have no idea. It, if it was me, I would not be like that. I can, I'd be like, God, where are you? Why have you abandoned me? Why are you treating me like this? Joseph can't see that if, in that moment at least, that if he hadn't been put in the pit, he would have been killed instantly, which meant that his family would have starved to death, which meant that the Messiah would have never been born. <laughs> if he's not in the pit, the ultimate good of God for this world never plays itself out. Now, Joseph, by the end of his life, looks back and gets to see at least a glimpse of that because he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He gets a little picture, but he doesn't even see the whole thing. We get to sit back and see the whole thing and recognize, yes, exactly, the, the sovereign will of God is perfect. It is for God's ultimate glory and for our ultimate good, even in the hard things. So recognizing these truths then, the principle of humble trust tells us that in the midst of and overarching all of our plans and decision-making, God will work out all of the details according to his plan 
and in a way that is perfect. That's the principle. Um, and we have to humble, our, humble ourselves then and trust that. James 4, verses 13 to 16, probably the classic text, I think, on this particular point. James says this, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, your boast or you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Now, what's the issue here in this little illustration? What is it that's so arrogant? Is it that they made plans? Is it that their plans are the problem? Well, no. Is there anything inherently evil about making travel plans and going to another city? No. Is there anything inherently sinful about making calendar plans and having like something planned out for a year from now or two or three? No, there's nothing inherently sinful about that. What about their business plans? Were the business plans sinful? Like going and trading and making profit? Was that? No, that's not sinful either. So then James, what, what exactly is the problem? Well, the problem, he says, is their arrogance that it was inherent in all of these plans. For example, the first thing he says, look, you don't even know if you have tomorrow. You don't even know. You, you may not make it home today. We've said that multiple times here, I feel like, in the last few months. But, but it's a truth that we have to just deal with. We don't know. I don't know that I have tomorrow or this coming week or this coming month, this coming year. My life is a mist. It appears, poof, for a moment and then gone. So there's arrogance in that to just even just assume that the future is set and, and that everything's going to go the way I think it is. Yeah, that's a problem. And then second, he says what they should have recognized and said was, if the Lord wills, we will do this and that. Now, understand, it's not about the wording here, because I have known people who are like, you know, if the Lord wills, I have to go to the bathroom right now. You know, like in this, they're like, they try to get like focused in on the verbiage. It's not about the wording. It's about the heart behind it. It's the recognition that every single one of our plans is plan B. Every single one. God's plan, always plan A. Our plans, always plan B. So go ahead and make the plans. Plan to go to the city and plan to stay there for a year and plan to do the business and plan to profit. The plans are not the problem. It's the heart behind it and the recognition that we may not have tomorrow and that all of these things, every single one of them, they're in the hand, they're in the hand of the Lord. Friesen says it like this, quote, In all decisions, the believer should humbly accept in advance the outworking of God's sovereign will as it touches each decision. Since the sovereign will of God cannot be known in advance, okay, it's secret, right? He doesn't, he doesn't just tell me everything he's going to do. Since that, that's secret, it has no direct bearing on the activity of decision-making. On the other hand, since the sovereign will of God ultimately determines whether and or when our plans are accomplished, its reality should govern our attitude in decision-making. Humble planning is the proper response to the sovereign will of God. Then, we trust him to work out all things together for good. Now, let's do two things, and then we will be done with this. First, let's look at an example very quickly of this entire idea 
in Scripture. Now, we're not going to go through the, the actual process of this, so if you want to do it later, I'll give you the passages you're going to compare, but I'll, I'll kind of walk you through it in general. But we're going to compare Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 8 to 13, and Romans 15, verses 20 to 29. Okay, Romans 1, 8 to 13, 15, 20 to 29. Because in these passages, Paul is explaining to the Romans what his plans were for visiting them. He, at that point that he wrote, he had never been there. And so he's like, hey, I want to come see you. He tells them why. He tells them kind of what he's thinking and how this is all going to work. So Friesen takes that, you know, those passages, and he, he sort of lays out some steps of how that looked in reality for the Apostle Paul. So first of all, we look at his purposes. Paul adopted spiritual purposes. Why did he want to come? Well, it was to preach the gospel to them. It's to strengthen them. Is that a valid biblical purpose? Absolutely. He's going to minister. So his purposes are solid. He's in the realm of obedience as we've been thinking about it. Next, Paul lists out his priorities. He doesn't know his time frame exactly. He says there, I think in chapter 15, that he wanted to get some more things done where he was, and then he was heading to Spain, but he's going to do it by coming to Rome. So you see priorities and planning going on here, right? Where he's like, okay, I got this to do first. I want to go here. I'm going to stop on my way, you know, to there to see you. So he's got a priorities. He's got a plan put together. We see that he committed this to God through prayer, chapter 1, verses 8 and 10. So he submits himself. The plans, the whole package is ministry to the Lord. Hey, God, whatever. And we'll pause here, and I'll ask the question, if you know anything about the book of Acts, do Paul's plans, as you read about them in Romans 1 and Romans 15, come to pass? Yes but not like Paul intended. He did get to Rome. He actually got an all-inclusive paid cruise to Rome aboard Caesar's prison ship uh, with a full Roman escort to protect him along the way. That wasn't in his plans, okay? But God worked that out. Did that change his time frame? Absolutely. When he gets to Rome, he doesn't just visit and head on off to Spain. He's on house arrest for two years in Rome. Is he like sitting there like weeping, God, why? Why did you ruin my plans? No. He's like, okay, you got a different plan here, I see. So he uses that time to write some scripture, and he ministers to people who come to visit him, and he strengthens the church in Rome. Okay? Because he's plan B, right? God had plan A, and he's just kind of going with it. And so the next step here in, in the list of, of things that happen is you see perseverance. When providentially hindered from accomplishing his plans, he assumed, you get this from Acts, he assumed that the delay was God's sovereign will. So that conviction, it, it frees him from discouragement then. He has no reason to be discouraged. He had good plans. He had good purposes, good, you know. He did all the things right, but God had other ideas, and that's okay. That is okay. And he responds well to that. And then finally, he explains it to the Romans and, and to us as well. So it just gives you a picture of how this looked in Paul's life. Second, then let's apply it to ourselves and our own decision-making process. You know, what should we do? So you're on the, you know, maybe you're wrestling with something right now, like a big decision. You know, if you're not now, it will be later, right? So big decision, what do you do? Um, well, here you go. Number one, are you living in obedience? It's always the first question. Don't say you want to know God's will about this or that when you're ignoring his will about everything he's told you, right? It's just, it doesn't work. So, so are you living in obedience? Are you searching the scriptures to make sure that every component of your life, and I know we're sinners, so that's never going to be perfect. I'm not looking for perfection with the statement, but that are we, our actions, our goals, our purposes, our attitudes, are all of those things 
falling within the realm of obedience as best we can tell and as best maybe others can tell who are looking in on our life. So are you living in obedience? Number two, assuming you are, you're living within those boundaries, recognize that you have freedom. And I say this again because I know a lot of people are going to struggle with this when the time comes, but, but they're going to sit there and be like, oh, but God, clearly you must want to reveal to me in some special way the red shirt or the blue shirt. And I'm like, I don't think that's how God works here. Not like that. If you're living in obedience and now you've got a choice that isn't addressed by it, then you have freedom, so make a choice. But number three, as you're doing that, pursue and utilize wisdom. So all the things we talked about, right? You're going to seek wisdom. You're going to go through scripture. You're going you're to be in prayer. You're going to take time, if you can, to, to work that thing out and let God, you know, direct through that. You're going to get counsel in that process. All of these pieces, and maybe more as well, you're counting the cost. All these pieces are going to come to, to bear. And then finally, you're going to trust God. So easy to say. So very hard to do. Pastor Tim, you know, Cornerstone's first pastor, I, I still remember this so vividly. I had come to him, uh, you know, this is probably... 12, 13 years ago now, I'd come to him with some big question of life. What do I do? What do I do? Any counsel, any wisdom? Good to come to him and get counsel and wisdom, but, you know, I was really, really struggling, so we talked about it, and da-da-da-da-da. And finally, at the end, he just said to me, Stacy, you know, all these things being what they are, why don't you just take a step and see what God does? Just a step. Because sometimes, let's recognize in life, God uses his providence to close doors, open doors, direct us, protect us. He often does that. You've probably experienced that more times than you're even aware of. I know I have. And so you just take a step of faith and see what God does. And if that step opens up, take another one. And another one. And you don't know what God will do with that. You might start walking one path and all of a sudden doors close and things move. And, but the question at that moment is, do you, do you trust him? Do you really believe that he is the good father he claims to be? That he will always give you that bread that he promised to give, never a stone. That if you're trying as best you can in the, our broken sinfulness to do the things we've talked about this morning, that he will direct and that he will protect in each and every one of those steps. Look, it's hard. It's very, very hard. And it's, it's scary. <laughs> it's scary when you can't see what comes next. And that step isn't clear like 100% to you, but you're just, you're just going a little and seeing what God will do. It's it's hard, and everything in you will fight against that. But I am telling you, in the end, what we're not trusting in is the decision. We're not trusting in the circumstances, and I'm not looking for fleeces, and I'm not wanting feelings. I'm wanting to obey Scripture, be free in our choices, exercise wisdom, and then walk by faith. <laughs> you walk by faith, trusting that God will be the good father that he claims to be. And I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, he will not disappoint. Will you bow your heads with me?
Father, these things are so easy to talk about in one sense and so hard to live. But you are good and you are loving. And in the end, my trust and our trust is in you. And so we, we process decisions as best we can and we often fail and we recognize our own sinfulness in all of these things. But I pray, Lord, as we go forward in life and we're dealing with stuff that's coming before us, that, that the principles we've seen here will be used by you, used by your spirit to guide us. How you must sometimes just look down and be like, why don't they trust me? I, forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for our arrogance. Forgive us for planning things that leave you completely out of the picture. Forgive us for assuming we have tomorrow. We are completely dependent on you. And I pray, Lord, that as we all move forward and step in different directions and direct us, guide us, put people in our lives to counsel us, to help us to be faithful in prayer, constantly in your word, seeking you, trying to obey, to live godly lives, so that we can go out then and live in the freedom as your image bearers that you, you made us to live in. And so I thank you, Lord, for your word and for our opportunity to study this very important topic. Please. Please, Spirit, use it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.